you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. You wouldn't be remiss to say that there was a curse of sorts on the White Star Line, over the years having lost a number of ships. It was formed in Liverpool in 1845. Its first shipwreck came in 1853, when the Burt Poor wrecked off the coast of Wexford, Ireland, then followed by two more the following year, the David Cannon near Halifax, Nova Scotia, and the Taylor wrecked on a rocky shoal near Lambie Island off Dublin, Ireland. 360 casualties resulted in the the latter instance. In 1867, the first incarnation of the company went bankrupt after lost contracts and failed mergers. The next year, the company was resurrected when the remnants were purchased by Thomas Ismay. Local company Harland & Wolf was exclusively contracted to construct some steamships and set about their work in 1869. Until the line's disillusion in 1949, it suffered several more shipwrecks, among them the Titanic in 1912. Overall, 46 White Star vessels were wrecked or sunk during wartime. The one being discussed today, however, is the only White Star vessel to vanish completely, the Neuronic. At the time, the largest steam-powered cargo ship in the world The Neuronic was built under Thomas Ismay's incarnation of the company. 143 meters, or nearly 470 feet in length, the White Star Line's usual contractor, Harland & Wolf, finished the construction of the ship on May 26, 1892 in Belfast. It was a month and a half later, on July 15th, that the ship undertook its maiden voyage across the Atlantic from Liverpool to New York City. And over the next six months, Several more voyages were undertaken. Having traveled back to England just over a week before, on February 11, 1893, the Neuronic departed Alexander Dock in Liverpool, once more bound for New York. The ship carried a crew of 60, including Captain William Roberts, as well as 14 passengers and livestock. Also on board was 2,876 tons of cargo. The ship briefly stopped at Port Linus on the northeast coast of the Isle of Anglesey in Wales. The Neuronic's stop in Port Linus was the last time it was seen. The Neuronic wasn't really missed until late February. It should have docked in New York on or about the 22nd, and when it hadn't arrived after several days, rumors began to spread. Any number of other ships, 
which departed on voyages around the same time as Neronic and which would have traveled through the same waters, were also late arriving. A German vessel called the Tormina, which had been one of these, docked in Halifax on February 25th. The captain reported ice flows and tempestuous seas. The British Algeria and Bolivia reported the same. The Italy, St. Enoch, Alsatia, Apollo, and Pomeranian were making their own transatlantic voyages along the same shipping routes traveled by the Neuronic, and all of these were missed as well. All later turned up. The Italy finally docked on March 7th with the captain reporting, quote, the worst seas he had ever seen. And Captain Ogilvy of the St. Enoch reported that the seas along the route, quote, made a ship almost unimaginable and that everything movable was swept from the decks and lost in the ocean. It seemed very likely that the Neuronic had encountered the same foul weather reported by these ships. For the last to arrive, the Alsatia, which made it to Brooklyn on March 8th, reported that they found remains of a shipwreck on February 28th at about 42 degrees north latitude, 31 degrees west longitude, or about 300 miles northwest of the Azores. The same day, there was a bit of hope for a resolution to the mystery when a British ship named the Eglantine docked in Philadelphia with nine shipwrecked sailors aboard. The sailors, though, proved to be from the ship, from the ship Chislehurst, not the unheard of Neuronic. Some also began rumors that the ship had burned at sea. According to the Delaware Gazette and State Journal for March 9, 1893, quote, The nature of her cargo, which consisted of tallow and merchandise of an inflammable nature, has led to this belief. The merchandise of inflammable nature, according to other articles, was the substance called chlorate of potash, better known today as potassium chlorate. A flammable whitish powder, it's a component in match heads. It's also used in fireworks, and sometimes as a substitute for gunpowder. If you've been captivated by The Reporter's Notebook and just need a little bit more content between seasons, crack open some unsolved Pennsylvania cases on the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Hi, I'm Sarah, one of the hosts of KCC, and our goal through our podcast is to reignite the cases that have been lost and forgotten to time in the hopes of bringing new tips to investigators and closure to the families of victims. When you find us on any podcasting app, you'll hear stories from one host at a time with a discussion from the other three co-hosts. Dive into what happened to the young boy found in a box outside of Philadelphia, listen to the details of missing District Attorney Ray Greekar, or choose any of the other captivating mysteries. Then hop over to our blog or social media pages and discuss your theories with us. For more information, check out kccpod.com or search for Keystone Cold Cases on any podcasting app for new cases each week to sleuth out. More discoveries of physical traces were yet to come. On March 20th, a ship called the Coventry arrived in Bremen, Germany. The crew reported that around March 4th, they found two lifeboats bearing the name Neuronic at 42 north latitude, 46 west longitude, a point about 470 miles southeast of Cape Race, Newfoundland. They felt that the lifeboat showed clear signs of storm damage. 
Another ship, the Chicago, also reported finding a ship's mast floating 300 miles northeast of where the Alsatian had found their wreckage. The Gulf Stream might indicate that this was the same piece of wreckage found by that ship even. Finally, on July 21st, a Norwegian ship called the Emblem was at 36 north latitude, 33 west longitude, a point approximately 295 miles southwest of the Azores, when it found a drifting lifeboat which, at least according to the Emblem's crew, was another from the Neuronic. It had a large hole torn in the bottom. Ocean currents, again, would seem to indicate that this could have been not a third boat, but possibly one of those earlier found by the Coventry. Gradually, it became generally assumed that the ship was completely lost, and hope of its eventual arrival in port was dispelled. By the next year, a fund for widows and children of Neuronic crewmen had been established, a clear sign that nobody expected any of the crew to ever make it home. Then there were the bottle messages. All four of these were assumed to have been hoaxes, although there are odd consistencies among them as well. The first was found on March 30th in Norfolk, Virginia, by a man named William Johnson. The message read, 3.10 a.m. February 19th, SS Neuronic at sea. To who picks this up, report when you find this to our agents, if not heard of before, that our ship is sinking fast beneath the waves. It's such a storm that we can never live in the small boats. One boat has already gone with her human cargo below. God let all of us live through this. We were struck by an iceberg in a blinding snowstorm and drifted two hours. Now it's 3.20 a.m. by my watch, and the great ship is dead level with a sea. Report to the agents at Broadway, New York, M. Kersey and Company. Goodbye, all. It was signed by a John Olson cattleman. The White Star Line felt the bottle was a hoax, noting that to make it from where the Neuronic probably disappeared to Norfolk, it would have had to drift against the Gulf Stream. In addition, no John Olson was amongst the crew of the ship. The identity of this as a hoax might be supported by the fact that, as apparent from Norfolk papers, William Johnson was a habitual criminal. On April 3rd, another was found in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn by a William Clare. The bottle was stamped with the address of a company on 113th Street. In the bottle, scrawled on a page torn out of a book, was this message. <gasps> February 19th, 1893. Neuronic sinking. All hands praying. God have mercy on us. It was signed L. Winsel. Like John Olson, a name not existing in the records of the Neuronic's crew. Also like the Norfolk bottle, it would seem almost impossible for it to have made it from the Grand Banks, where it seems likely the ship went down, to Brooklyn. Interesting, however, is the fact that the date given for the sinking was the same as that given in the Norfolk message. Interesting, given that the exact text of the Norfolk message wasn't well known. There were also two other bottles found, neither of which contributed much. One, discovered in June 1893 on a small island in the Irish Channel, read only, Stuck Iceberg, Sinking Fast, Neuronic. Once again, it was signed Young, which was once again a non-existent name. Finally, the last was found on September 18, 1893, on the banks of the Mersey River. It read, All Hands Lost, Neuronic, No Time to Say More. 
it was signed merely T. In early 1905, then, the mystery of the neuronic re-entered the public consciousness in the most innocuous way. On January 13th, a man appeared at 2233 North 2nd Street in Philadelphia, the home of Patrick Kelly, a cousin of Owen Kelly, an Irish-American mill owner in that city who had famously gone missing in October of 1904. The mysterious man told the cousin that Owen was in New York City and offered to take him there for $500. He claimed that both he and Owen Kelly belonged to an Irish secret society which was dedicated to blowing up English ships. He had with him a briefcase which he, came, which he claimed to contain a bomb. The cousin declined to go anywhere with this mystery man, but phoned police, who swiftly arrested him after finding that his briefcase did, indeed, contain a bomb. Quote, a diabolically intricate contrivance which indicates that the maker was a man of mechanical skill. The stocky, square-faced man identified himself as Gessler Rousseau. He was 38 years old and from Chicago originally. Other than this, he gave the police no information, except to say that he was planning to blow up an English battleship on the behest of an Irish society he had earlier mentioned. The explosive was wrapped in a page of a Washington, D.C. newspaper, which led Captain Donaghy of the Philadelphia police to suspect that this man might be connected to the bombing of a statue of Frederick the Great in that city. He is certainly not a mere crazy man, Donaghy said. He is educated and apparently remarkably shrewd. He uses good language and cannot be tripped into any admissions. I think the man is of Irish extraction, although he says he is a Frenchman. I think it only fair to say that his story about being connected with an Irish society is pure fabrication. Neither do I believe that the man either directly or indirectly knows anything of Owen Kelly. He probably thought the family had money and he could extort some of it. Inquiries were made about the man in Washington and Chicago, and it was determined that he had been the man who tried to blow up a statue in Washington, and that furthermore, in 1903, he had attempted to destroy the Cunard Line ship Umbria, at the time docked in New York City. In 1900, a man named Carl Dullman was, was convicted of sabotage in a bombing plot at the Welland Canal in upstate New York. One correspondent to the newspapers felt that this man might have been the same as Rousseau. The correspondent was wrong, however. Three saboteurs were convicted of the 1900 plot. These were John Walsh, John Mullen, and Luke Dillon. The only similar name would be Luke Dillon, but he died in prison in 1914, so clearly wasn't Rousseau. It should be noted that Rousseau was a singularly inept saboteur. His bombing of the Umbria consisted of laying a bomb on the docks adjacent to the ship and promptly writing a letter to the police telling them it was there and laying the blame on the mafia. When police arrived, the bomb was merely kicked into the water and rendered inoperable. His bombing of an inanimate bronze statue at the War College in Washington failed to destroy it. That statue, by the way, was bombed a second time in 1918, and following this attempt, was removed. It now stands at the War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. It was eventually discovered that the man's real name was Gessner Russell, and he was well known to the Chicago police, having been picked up numerous times since 1886. His assumed name was a pairing of a Swiss despot Gessner from the William Tell legend, 
and French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, whose name he admitted he didn't know how to spell. He was put on trial for the Umbria bombing in March 1905, found guilty, and sent to Sing Sing Prison. He was to go on to claim that he built the bomb that the Spanish used to blow up battleship Maine in Havana. So how exactly was this would-be anarchist connected with the disappearance of the Neuronic? In Rousseau's apartment at 287 Washington Boulevard in Chicago was found a note written in French. Translated, the note read, The destruction of the Neuronic is complete. Mr. Lebrun, who at this moment has left for Chicago, and there it is cut off. Mr. Lebrun was never identified, whether that was an ali- another alias for Russell slash Rousseau or someone else, who knows. Rousseau was only too happy to claim responsibility for this disaster as well, though as it was observed in the New York Times for January 17, 1905, there is no reason to believe she was destroyed by design, still less that this fraud has anything to do with her destruction. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to your email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.